In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents. I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator, or not? Uh, my party is going bet crazy. Yeah! You're the pop- Alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches Sup Podcast. America! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sup Daily Podcast. I'm Amanda Duberman, and today I'm here with Serlina Maxwell. Serlina Maxwell is the Senior Director of Progressive Programming for Sirius XM, where she is also the co-host of the award-winning radio show Signal Boost. She's also an MSNBC political analyst and served as the Director of Progressive Media for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. And most recently, she's the author of the book The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide. Hey, Serlina, how are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here today. Of course, of course. Um, I read the book yesterday and I, I loved it so much and I've already recommended it to so many people. I'm so excited to, to get to talk to you about Thank it. Thank you so much. I mean, it's been really exciting to, I've just started doing interviews about the book um, and it, it just dropped. Um, and so it's the first sort of full week talking to people who have read the book. Oh, cool. Um, and so that's been really exciting because it's interesting to see, you know, what what things resonated, what things um, are um, infused in, qu- in the questions, you know, what quotes stood out for people. Um, yeah. that, that's been really exciting to see. Sometimes it's the same one. Sometimes uh, it's different ones. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could sort of pl- explain to our listeners what you mean by the end of white politics. Is that a proposal? Is it an inevitability? Or is it the reality we're currently living in? After reading the book, I have my feeling on what I'm convinced it was. But in your view, what are you signaling with the title? Well, I think that, you know, we have to look at what politics is and how it's been done um, since America was founded. Uh, and so when I'm talking about white politics, what I'm really saying is that we've been doing white identity politics, white identity-based politics. Um, since America's founding. And this is a very unique moment in which, you know, we're on the precipice of America becoming um, a country where white people and white voters are a minority. Uh, And that's going to happen in the next 25 years, according to Pew Research. So that's going to mean um, a full transformation in our politics, in the conversation we have about politics, in the policies that we put forward and discuss um, what issues are prioritized. Um, and so I, I say the end of white politics is a statement of aspiration uh, because nothing is in, an inevitability and the demographic shifts are not destined um, to mean any one thing. Um, but I do think that this is a moment where we should take a step back and use it as an opportunity to open up the spectrum of concern and to widen the spectrum of issues that we actually focus on and talk about and the types of voters that we continue to talk about and focus on. You know, if I hear one more conversation about a Midwestern voter, or a white working class man in Ohio, I mean, you know, as if black people don't live in Detroit, 
Yeah. I'm going to be very upset because I really feel like, you know, we are missing what is going to be the majority, but what it already in some states is the majority or close to the majority. And, you know, that's black and Latinx voters, which in states like Texas and California are already are a majority of the voting population. Yeah. Yeah. And what stuck out uh, to me from your book um, and what is repeated and is already repeated often, but you frame it differently is this liberals, especially white liberals are very fixated on 77,000 white suburban voters from like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. We have been convinced. I have said it before that like, they're the ones that we lost and we have to get them back in order to win. But in your book, you write, the 2020 election is not about the 77,744 white votes that gave Donald Trump the Electoral College. It's about the broader electorate that is younger, increasingly female, and incredibly diverse. You have so many statistics, plenty of statistics in the book showing why this is true and why this is the reality, and specifically also why, you know, turnout was affected. But why, why are people so tempted to attach to that number and woo these people back when we would be better served, as you explain in the book, by just saying good riddance and moving on to the coalition that has brought us to victory before and is ready to be activated again. There's a couple of different reasons why we do this. I mean, one is because the media focuses on those voters and they're always talking about those voters. They're always talking about Trump's base, the 26% of the electorate that voted for him in 2016 to give him the electoral college. And so, you know, I think that in part it's because our overall culture is white-centered. Um, and so, you know, it's hard for us to shake off um, what we've traditionally done. And we've traditionally treated white as a default identity and everything else is identity politics and somehow less than or not as good and not as valid. Um, and I think, you know, in order for us to get the message in this moment, we have to realize the math is on our side. Why would we obsess over 77,000 people who, again, we assume are all white, who we assume are all in the suburbs, um, when there were a million black voters in those three states that did not vote, that had voted, that did not vote? Um, you know, they voted in 2012 for Barack Obama. They voted in 2008 for um, uh, Barack Obama. And they chose for whatever reason to sit home or they, their votes were suppressed by voter ID laws, like in the state of Wisconsin, or... Um, you know, they couldn't make it because of whatever societal reasons, you know, personal reasons. They worked a couple of jobs and it's not, it's, it isn't easy to vote in a lot of places the way it should be. Um, but I think, you know, the Republicans understand the data. That's why they've been focusing on suppressing the vote and, and the voters in particular um, that I speak about in the book, those younger and more diverse voters. That's why many of their voter ID laws impact college students because those voters, at least in their perception, are not, quote unquote, their voters. Um, and so they, they understand the data. But for some reason, progressives, and I even think the media is a little bit obsessed with that 77,000, um, who they assume is all one type of person. But I, I, you know, nobody could break that. Nobody went to all 77,000 doors and knocked on it and said, hi, are you a white man? Like a white yeah. working class man um, who flipped from Obama to Trump. So I think that it's based on a false premise and it obscures the fact that there are more voters that, you know, didn't flip from Obama to Trump. They flipped from Obama to staying at home. And yeah. we need to change that. 
Yeah, exactly. I think for some reason people find it soothing to just think like, oh, they're just it's just 70,000 people that probably voted for Obama. And that's all we have to do when really it's like and you spend the book explaining why actually by 2045, the concerns of the majority of people here are going to be much more like the more progressive wing of the Democratic mm -hmm. Party than like. And my next question is, is in the book you describe this is worth considering because the there literally isn't a, a successful message to orient to those maybe Obama, Trump, white men in Wisconsin and black women in wherever. Mm -hmm. Like we are actually trying to pursue these people at the expense of the Obama coalition and the future of the party. Right. Like there is no message that appeals to both of those groups, right? Well, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, one of the things that happens a lot, and this has happened with, um, you know, white moderates and also white progressives candidates. Um, they generally try to um, soften the label of racist, um, you know, if you apply it to people who support Donald Trump. So they'll, they'll say, well, I don't think all the people that supported Donald Trump are racist, but they just had, you know, economic anxiety or whatever reason they're, they're specifying that isn't at least a tolerance for racial, racist rhetoric, right? Um, because it wasn't a deal breaker for those people. So if racist rhetoric and, you know, coming out on day one of your campaign and saying, you know, Mexicans are rapists and criminals, but some of them might be good people. If that's not a deal breaker for you, that's not a Democratic voter. And I don't know how you appeal to that voter and without calling out the, the racism and by sort of softening the blow um, by saying, well, it's not, it's not race. They're not racist. They just have all these other, you know, I feel like black people can hear you say that too. And we're like, wait, no, it is racist. Like, just call it racist. Why are you afraid to offend them while you're offending us? Right. And, and it's not just really offending us. You know, when you're, t when you talk about, you know, Latinx people, Donald Trump caged children and for anyone to, to even go along with that in any way, um, you know, by supporting Donald Trump in the future or presently, you know, that's not a Democratic voter. And I think, you know, it, it, you, it's almost insulting, you know, sometimes for, for people to try to thread that needle to not offend that moderate white voter who they perceive, you know, to, to be the one they need to get to win back when they're not, you know, standing up for the communities that are being harmed. Because those are your voters. The ones being harmed are your voters. The white working class man that flipped from Obama to Trump, he's not, his children are not being caged. He's not being harmed. So I think that the focus and attention on, you know, making him feel comfortable while brown children are being hurt, it just feels wrong. And it feels like a moment where we have to call that out for what it is and insist mm -hmm. that the progressives who really have the same value set um, you know, and I, and I really do believe that many on the left, you know, all backgrounds, we do have a certain set of shared values for equality and opportunity and all of that for people, right? Pr protecting people, making sure that, you know, people have access to healthcare and jobs and education. I mean, we have fundamentals that we believe in. And I think that, you know, we can align ourselves, you know, along those, those progressive values and then stand up for each other when one of the one of the more marginalized among us is being attacked because it's not it's not even theoretical um it, it, it's you know physical danger and harm that is coming to 
people of color in this country as the result of Trump's rhetoric. I mean, I, I went to the Arizona border in 2015 um, and I toured around with a group of journalists and it was, it changed my life because as somebody who considers themselves to be very informed, I had learned, you know, new things every minute about what was going on on the border. And this is in the Obama administration. And I remember being so like physically ill, um, you know, just considering some of the you know, humanitarian um, uh, disasters happening um, on the border. And that was in the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it, it feels like, you know, we need people who are going to stand up and fight. Um, and you can't stand up and fight for, for those of us who are marginalized if you're trying to attract the guy who is tolerant of, of blatant bigotry towards that group of people. Right, absolutely. Especially since we've already known and we've known for years that a lot of those people don't vote in their economic interests anyway. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. The thing that blew my mind in the book, and I don't know how I I read this before, was that Democrats haven't won a majority of the white vote since 1964. Any other industry you think would pivot? (laughs) Yeah, it's probably time to pivot. (laughs) What is happening? Towards the future, we are, I mean, 
it, it's it's the whole culture um, is is you know we're set we're we're a white supremacist um, culture, mm-hmm. and so you know this moment is a racial reckoning for a reason because a lot of people are having that moment where they're like, wait, everything is a particular way. Why is it like this? Um, I I mean I remember as a kid asking that question, but to your point about um, and and my. Uh, point in the book about 1964 um it's like yeah you know you should pivot towards the future but also you haven't won the white boots in 64 and then yeah. even if you sort of break that down when when people often talk about the 53 percent of white women who voted for donald trump as if that's some sort of like you know negative indicator that oh my god well one they're trying to say that hillary clinton was so unlikable that even 53 yeah. percent of her own people wouldn't even vote for her. That's really what the subtext of that comment is. is. But additionally, um, it's it obscures the fact that Mitt Romney won fifty six percent of of white women, and white women, the majority of them, vote for Republicans. That is just the data. And so, in order to sort of talk about you know white voters and and the coalition we're trying to build in the future, we have to be honest about what the data says now and focus on the the voters who are showing up for us because you know if we're so obsessed with a sort of a fictional mythical moderate white voter that doesn't exist doesn't exist any longer um we're missing you know so many votes we're just leaving them all on the table black people are like can you come talk to me please come talk to me yeah i mean whenever Mm -hmm. i I watch sort of different commentators on TV. I've noticed lately, it's like the veteran older white strategists who are like, this is in the bag. Look at Biden's poll numbers. We, this is ours to lose. It's going to be great. And then it's always the commentators of color who are like, he needs to give us something to vote for. And that advice still doesn't us. I mean, we can get into sort of, you do write about Biden and the primary yeah, race yeah. <laughs> sort of at like, at yes, in the yes. book. And the book is a great debrief um, on the primary race we just went through and especially how like different individuals entering the race impacted other trajectories, specifically how people like Booker and Castro and Harris were basically not able to mount a full campaign because they didn't have the financial resources, but you had these people come in and were able to basically catch up. But you don't really hide your disappointment with with Biden and his lack of evolution on certain things. Um, What do you think that he needs to promise to do in his first 100 days to show people that if he gets this victory, it will be because of black voters? What does he need to promise and signal support for that he will do in his first 100 days to build that coalition for November? Well, one of the things um, he's already done, which I want to credit him for, is he said he is a he sees himself as a transitional figure in this moment, and I think that that's important because I think you know understanding that you know you are sort of the bridge to this future that I'm talking about. You know that at least you know gives me the sense that he he sees the reality and the data and all of the information that I'm seeing, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know I think he should pick a black woman. I don't really have a favorite. Um, I think they're all qualified and all have their, you know, specific things that make them stand out in certain areas. Um, one of the great things about this moment is having options. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. like very exciting. Exactly. Um, and, and one of the things I think he needs to do is, you know, whoever he does end up picking as vice president needs to be his true partner in governing. Number one, because we're still going to be in COVID. So I, my dad is a biologist. So I'm quarantined with a biologist, which makes uh, it, this 
more terrifying, less terrifying. <laughs> I don't know. It day to day. It depends. Like some yeah. days, like, well, at least I'm with somebody who knows, you know, what this is and what it's about and we can stay safe. And he's worked with these viruses in a lab. So he's definitely gonna be able to tell me what to put on so I don't catch it. Um, <laughs> but also he's telling the truth about what it is. So then I'm like, exactly. Ignorance is not bliss where you are. So obviously, you know, as president, if he should win, Joe Biden is going to go into the White House dealing with a crisis, similar to how Barack Obama went in dealing with the financial crisis, except this is a global pandemic unparalleled. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen between now and January 21st when he steps in the door. But I do know that whoever he picks, hopefully a black woman, will have to be a partner in governing. So maybe he's over here focused on the pandemic, working you know, with the scientists to make sure that the distribution <laughs> goes appropriately when they find a vaccine, hopefully soon. Um, because that's what you're voting for. You're voting for a distribution <laughs> um, system. That's what I, a vaccine distribution system is how my co-hosts on Signal Boost on SiriusXM, she puts it. That's oh, funny. You're, you're voting for a vaccine that's distribution true. system. Um, yeah. And that actually, people who are on the fence about Joe Biden, that works on them. Really? <laughs> really well. Yeah, <laughs> if, they, if, we're, if they're not you, moved by RBG's replacement, we'll try exactly. vaccine. <laughs> who do you want to make sure that you can get the vaccine in CVS for your infant or your yeah. eight-year-old? Do you want that to be Donald Trump or do you want that to be Joe Biden? I, that's an easy question for me. So, I mean, use that, you know, hopefully people can use that if that's helpful. Um, but what yeah. I think, he, but what I think, you know, in terms of, you know, how the the vice presidential pick and whoever he picks as his cabinet, also, I think, you know, if he announced that early, that would be helpful because then he can sort of yeah. give us a signal based on who he puts in these positions, you know, what he's thinking about particular issues, who he puts in health and human services, who he puts in Department of Education, um, housing and urban development, um, and so it's important to see sort of who his cabinet is, the makeup and their experience and their, um, you know, diversity of uh, work experience, lived experience, um, policy experience, so that they, you can sort of see, okay, well, he may not personally be for Medicare for all, but he's put somebody in there who's for Medicare for all. Right. And so that, you know, they're going to be spearheading whatever negotiation takes place and whatever makeup of the Senate there is in the Biden administration. Um, the same goes for reproductive health care. If he, you know, puts somebody in there um, who has a staunch sort of uh, record for protecting reproductive freedom and justice, you know, that was signal to those communities hardest impacted by those inequities that he's really going to take that issue seriously, even though historically he's been more moderate on the issue of choice. Um, the same is true um, for issues of racial justice. You know, if you were to pick um, you know, say Senator Kamala Harris, for example, or even Congressman Val Demings, both have um, experience in criminal justice in the system. One was a uh, police officer uh, in law enforcement, and the other was uh, attorney general and district, district attorney. They've wor both worked within the system and could be the point person to reform it or reformulate it um, and reimagine it. And perhaps maybe we can even get something robust going in terms of the defund conversation, even beyond the, you know, George Floyd Policing Reform Act. Um, and I think, you know, he, who he picks to be his partners in governing, um, I think will signal a lot. So it's not necessarily he, he needs to get X or Y, Z passed in 100 days, because I don't know what the makeup of the Senate is. Yeah. Um, and that's, 
that's always the main issue is Mitch McConnell. Right. Um, But I do think, you know, he can definitely signal where his agenda will be going based on who he picks for these specific cabinet positions. You worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign and you described that a number of black strategists did, specifically black women. And for that reason, she as an individual was able to sort of engage with these issues more successfully than maybe a Biden has. And I think you specifically talked about how she engaged with um, the super predator or the the crime bill Mm -hmm. in a way that she she really understood what had happened. And in a way that Biden has not yet done with that crime yeah. bill, I really liked how in the book you wrote that, you know, Kamala Harris gets called a cop, but she was enforcing the laws that Joe Biden wrote. Yeah. Do you think that Joe Biden, he needs some sort of moment? He, I mean, the book that, that you wrote, it was always timely, but mm-hmm. these moments have yeah. exposed just how timely it is. What are you expecting to see from Biden or what do you need to see from him to feel like we can build that, I was very struck by the Obama coalition that you referenced, not just because I think we're not talking about how Obama won twice. Right. Not only did people yeah. get super excited in 08, but we got people like that excited again in 2012. What does Biden, do you think he needs to have a moment where he really meaningfully engages with the impact of the crime bill and does something close to apologizing for it? I think that he does. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Bill Clinton apologized. Um, Hillary Clinton apologized, even though it wasn't her bill. Um, she apologized for what she said. Um, and I think, you know, Joe Biden needs to do that too. I don't, I don't think that he has, he has not fully, um, I think, you know, come to terms with the impact of the law that he wrote. (laughs) And it's, uh, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to me that Hillary Clinton was held to such a critical standard on the, on the crime bill. Um, mainly because she didn't, she wasn't in legislation. She didn't, she wasn't in a position of power. Um, at the time. Um, and so I feel like that, that distinction should make a difference, but it does not. So if we're going to critically engage with her over those issues, why would we not want to do that with the author and creator of, of the system that we have been so critical of? Um, additionally, there's so much information out there um, where it's not like he doesn't know the impact of his crime bill. There yeah. are documentaries and books and people you could talk to. And, you know, one of the things I think is important for his campaign to do is to engage with those people. They should be talking to Alicia Garza and Patrice and Opal and DeRay and Brittany Packnett, and they should be talking to um, Michelle Alexander, and they should be engaging in conversations, um, even with people who have been re- very critical of Joe Biden, because... That's what we did in 2016. And I think, you know, um, to Hillary Clinton's credit, she, when it it was the moment that she hired Maya Harris, that's, I say in the book that, you know, that was kind of the moment that signaled to me that she, she was really taking the power of our vote seriously. Yeah. Because Maya had written a paper for the Center for American Progress, um, basically saying that women of color are a growing force in the American electorate and that we are just, we're completely overlooked. We're like an afterthought. People are not engaging with us, even though black women are winning your elections at all levels. And so, you know, when she hired Maya, I was like, hmm, she gets it. I see mm-hmm. that. I see, you know, I see what you're doing, Hillary. Um, and so I, I, I always told Maya this, that she was one of the reasons why when they called me, I was like, yep, I'm coming because mm-hmm. Maya's there. 
Amaya's there, Mignon's there, Karen Finney's there, um, Denise Horn is there. You know, you have Aaron Steven is, is there. You have so many black women who have experience um, in politics and in media. Um, and I wanted to work with them, <laughs> you know, and it, it, you know, yes to elect Hillary Clinton, but I also just wanted to work with those black women. And, you know, we had our black girl magic, you know, meetings and our brunches and our email lists and our Slack channel. And, you know, it was, the camaraderie was great. Um, and we all sort of understood that we were going into meetings, you know, speaking on people, speaking up, up for people who couldn't be there, you know, who couldn't advocate for their communities, but who look like us, you know, mm -hmm. and I think we all saw it as a privilege um, to be there, to be able to advocate um, within that and sort of, you know, help craft the message of the campaign. And, you know, we had such um, gracious colleagues, truly, because, you know, I can't always say that I was like, super nice about <laughs> but I was like, that's not gonna, you know, that's racist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, you said in the book, the one time you didn't speak up, it became an issue. And you, yeah, yeah I had just started then. And, you know, it, I, I still remember the sort of the feeling in my stomach at the moment, because it was just in knots. It was like, you know, my first week on the campaign, you know, I, I was asked to join onto the, the big, you know, strategy meeting. And, I, I, I knew, I knew I should have spoken up and I didn't. And, and I regret you felt the burden was yeah. mostly on you as part yeah. of the problem. Well, I, part of it too, is that I just knew I, I had, I was uniquely positioned to understand how rapidly the bad news was going to spread it in black Twitter. So I, I was, you know, I was hired sort of with that in mind. So it was literally my, mm -hmm. I was probably the one person on the call to be like, wait, no, this is going to be a huge, huge issue. Um, you know, and, but that was still my first week. So I have yeah. to say that, like, I have to give myself a little grace that past that, you know, when I saw sort of that blow up and I was like, oh, I was right. I knew this was going to happen. And now we're trying to fix it sort of on the, you know, the back end, which is, it's not necessarily how you want to do it in a political campaign. And so, you know, I never sort of didn't speak up again. Yeah. Um, I always spoke up and sometimes, you know, often we'd have, we were running against a, a white nationalist campaign it was, yeah. it was terrifying yeah. and so there were moments where I would stand there and I watch a tv I don't know if it was like Donald Trump's rally in Chicago where you know he was they were carting people out and you know they were going crazy and he was like cart them out cart them out yeah. don't, you know and I was just like this looks like a something I've seen in black and white you know like this yeah. looks like really not I mean I just the it was a visceral feeling and it was I remember I was standing next to um, one of my colleagues um, who is Latinx and we just like looked at each other and we were like, this is not n n like normal is not the word I would want to use here, but it, this is not your run of the mill presidential campaign. Republicans have always sort of done the dog whistles. Yep. You know, they've become more like people whistles lately um especially yeah. since birtherism but um you know they used to be for border security you know they weren't just saying like mexicans are rapists like they were they were sort of couching it in policy and goals or whatever mm -hmm. um we need to cut funding you know to help this other thing over here because you know black on black crime like they were yeah. they used to just sort of guise it in care and concern um in a different way and this was so explicit it was so scary for for me um, and, and for many, you know, that we, I had Muslim colleagues, I had, you know, obviously queer colleagues, Latinx colleagues. And so we, we felt 
the threat viscerally of the yeah. Trump presidency. Um, and so, you know, I just always, just always speak up if you have that feeling in your gut. Um, go with your gut. I, I probably yeah. would never let that moment pass without saying something again. Mm -hmm. so putting that even on me, not even, you know, the campaign, I, I think I give the campaign a very fair analysis. Um, and I really, truly, I truly respect all of my, my Hillary Clinton colleagues. I mean, you know, they were, <laughs> you know, we, we were in the trenches. It's, it's literally an unprecedented yeah. situation. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we all experienced that trauma together. Almost. Did you watch you the documentary? Of, oh, yes. Oh. I, I, I did. And you know what? That was actually a very cathartic moment for me. Was I it? thought it was going to be more painful than it was. Yeah. Um, mainly because you see how, well, one, you get to see what a lot of us who, who have interacted with Hillary Clinton get to see, which is that she's, a, she's wonderful. Um, and many of the things said about her are completely untrue. Um, and that is by design. And you get to sort of see why those things were said about her and are yeah. still said about her. Um, and I think, you know, the documentary was, I mean, if for, for those who haven't seen it on Hulu, it's, it's a, it's a moment to sort of think larger than just the person Hillary Clinton, because it, what the movie is about is about how she's almost like a Rorschach test for sexism and, and yeah. you know, patriarchy and gender um, over the course of the last 40 years. And so, and that's actually, you know, a piece of the book as well. Because yeah. in 2018, what we, I mean, I, I, I pretty much knew that when she was defeated in, in 2016 in the Electoral College, that there was going to be another year of the woman. I, I, I knew that. You know, when you saw people showing up at the Women's March. Totally. Um, I was like, okay. Yeah. We're, people are as upset as, as, you know, even the Hillary staff. <laughs> you know, people yeah. are pretty ticked off. They saw that Access Hollywood tape. And now this man is our president. And so there was a reaction. And I think that, you know, a lot of, I talked to a lot of white women after the election in 2016 about the fact, you know, they were in despair, like deep, deep, deep despair. And I, I, I rarely ever feel deep, deep, deep despair just because even in my own family history, you know, I have family members living, I can call right now who marched in Selma. Mm -hmm. and I just feel like I can't despair because look what they have done for me. You know, I can't despair and just, you know, be like, oh, nothing's going to change. You know, everything is terrible and sort of fall into that cynical loop where you just feel powerless. Like, right. I just decided that post-2016, I was going to work harder then, you mm -hmm. know, and be more direct and more clear and, and more focused on, you know, the, the meaning of it, this moment in history. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think, I, I just think that, that's important because this is this is a moment that's unprecedented and it requires clarity. Yeah, that leads me perfectly into my, my last question for you, which was I, I was really curious. I, I felt hopeful after I read your book. Is that what you wanted? Do you want <laughs> readers to come across hopeful, cautiously hopeful? Yeah. I felt like there is a huge opportunity right in front of us if we can just take our blinders on and like get working now. Because we can yeah, we can push for the better world we all want now now like it, it is yeah. inevitable well maybe not we'll see if right. democracy even describes or yeah. survives this administration we'll but yeah how do you want people to to come away after finishing the book 
Optimistic is, is really great. And, and I'm glad that you said that because when I first started writing it, I remember texting one of my friends like, I feel like I'm kind of writing a self-help book for, for progressives, <laughs> you know, sort of like a, yeah. you can do it. Um, and obviously I, I, I do read a lot of personal development. So I was like, is this sort of <laughs> used in my, my brain now? Yeah. Um, but I almost do feel like, yes, I, I want people to come away feeling optimistic for the future, hopeful for the future, but also I want them to feel like they should get activated to make the future different. I mean, because, you know, you could, you have to be the change. You have to go make yeah. the change. You have to go do the thing. You can't talk about it. You can't tweet about it only, right? Tweeting is yes. good. That's step one. Good. I'm tweet a lot. But, <laughs> um, but you also have to, you know, make sure everybody you know is registered. Make sure your registration's yeah. up to date because often there will be mistakes or it will be deleted um, from the roles. And so just all of those things, you know, right now there's funding about mail-in voting, scaling up all of that so that they have the envelopes and stamps and, the, you know, the staff and all of that. You know, these are the kinds of things that people can do to make the world different. I mean, obviously we all, um, most of us, um, feel like we want a different president because this is obviously not going well. Um, <laughs> you know, I joke, I was like, wow, the universe really put us all in timeout. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, you guys made a mistake. It's so bad. <laughs> you're going to go sit in time out, and you're going to think about where you went wrong. I was like, I think I, on my radio show, I'm always talking about how, you know, the universe really told us to all sit down. Like, yeah. think about what we're going to do here, because we really messed up um, in electing Donald Trump. But we have the ability in this democracy that still, thankfully, exists um, to change the future. And I do feel like progressives, you know, we should just run with it. Yes. You know, we, you rarely have sort of the data on your side and also, you know, sort of demographics and the diversity and size of Generation Z and millennials. Um, you know, they're already sort of aligned with you on many things. Um, and you don't want to lose the moment. Yeah. Um, because a whole other book could be written about how to, you know, explore beyond the two-party system. And you don't, I mean, I'm just saying... Mm -hmm. We have totally. a moment. Yeah. We have a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Erlina. We really appreciate it. Again, the book is called The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide, and it is out now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was so great chatting. Until the return of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to sup at Betches.com. Betches.